following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. You can turn your Bibles to Romans 14. Romans 14. Well, our text today is, uh, is verses 5 through 12, um, but... I want to read beginning in verse 1 just to set up the context and give you a quick quick review if you're thinking about what we covered last week. So uh, let's begin reading in Romans 14, verse 1. It says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard with your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to me. So then each one of us will give an account of himself God. Well, last Sunday, we began our journey through Romans 14 and 15, and this is a great passage, a very relevant passage, very applicable passage, because we can all relate to the Roman struggle. Surprise, surprise, they didn't all agree on everything, and neither do we. We have disagreements at times, and it's hard. And and when we disagree, disagreement brings discomfort. It it creates a tension and conflict. And sometimes those tensions begin to heat up, and and we get fired up at each other, and we don't know what to do. And that's where the Romans were. They were really struggling with disagreement and the tension it was creating. And, And remember from last week that they specifically disagreed over whether the church needs to continue to obey Old Testament purity laws and observe a Jewish holy days. And so the Jewish brothers, for the most part, their conscience was still bound by the Old Testament law. And and in particular, uh, the the main issue is that they believed that they could only eat clean meats, which had been butchered according to kosher laws. And so, since they were in the city of Rome, and it was maybe oftentimes hard to find a Jewish butcher, they would just eat vegetables, rather than eat an unclean meat uh, because it was butchered by uh, a Gentile. And, 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 the, and the Jews, uh, excuse me, the Gentiles, on the other hand, said, that's ridiculous. 
Christ has freed us from the law. We don't need to worry about that stuff anymore. And there you go. Eat your meat. And, uh, and Paul agreed. Paul agreed. We are free from the law. But remember that he adds a very important caveat in verse 14. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So, so even though Christians don't need to obey the law, even though there is no such thing as unclean meat anymore, Paul says that if you can't eat it in good conscience, then you shouldn't eat it. But where does that leave the church? How do they love each other when, when they have this sharp disagreement? And how do you respond when you and another believer who is also striving sincerely to honor the Lord have different but passionate convictions? What do we do there? You know, convictions about how you're going to dress, how you're going to parent your kids, convictions about what you're going to watch on TV or or all sorts of other things. What do we do when we disagree? Well, Paul answers in Romans 14 and 15 with this very relevant and very practical passage. And, and last Sunday, we saw really that he gives two fundamental challenges. Fundamentally, he says to, to the strong or to the Gentiles that you are to accept your brother without qualification and with love. Accept him. And then he challenges the Jews not to judge the Gentiles for having a lower standard. And, and today's text, verses 5 through 12, they're going to really continue to zero in on the, specifically on those who are considered to be the weak. That those who are tempted to judge because they have the higher standard. And, and, so, and so we all hate judgmentalism. No one likes judgmentalism. But the truth is we do it quite often. We all tend to be judgmental. And so we all need Paul's challenge, which is fundamentally here, very simply, to leave judgment to the Lord. It's not your job to be everyone's judge. It is God's job. Now, that's simple, but it raises a lot of questions, a lot of questions. So, so I'd like to begin by just asking today, what exactly is the judgmentalism that God condemns? Now, now that's a really important question because the Bible is clear that not all judgment is bad. So, for example, verse 5 commands you to be fully convinced in your own mind about what is right and what is wrong. Well, you can't be fully convinced unless you judge, unless you think and practice discernment. And, and as well, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12 commands the church to judge those who are inside the church. Meaning there that we are to hold each other accountable. And if someone is living in sin, we, we, we need to recognize it and call them out. That is our job. So, so, so there is a good judgment. So the question then is, well, when does good judgment become judgmentalism? Well, as you can see on the screen, there's my working definition of the judgmentalism that, that Paul condemns. Judgmentalism is usurping God's authority by harshly judging another believer's sincerity in striving to please the Lord. Now, now why do I say that? Well, well, first of all, Paul confronts the Jews very clearly 
for, for usurping God's authority to judge. So, so you see that in verse 4. He says, who are you to judge the servant of another? That's not your job. And again, he says in verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So what's he saying there? He's saying, you don't need to worry about judging your brother. Because God already has that covered. He's going to do it someday, so leave it to God. So, you are sinfully judgmental whenever you try to usurp God's authority to judge his people. You think you have a right, an awareness even sometimes, that, that you simply don't have that only belongs to God. Now, now you're sitting there thinking, well, well, I would never do that. I don't think I'm God, so I guess I'm free from the temptation to be judgmental. But, but, but God says, God says that you put yourself in God's place whenever specifically you move beyond just evaluating someone's actions or, or their convictions to, to, to making a harsh judgment about the sincerity of their heart or, or the, condition, the condition of your brother. So it's not just that you disagree with their conclusions. You, you become judgmental when you harshly accuse someone of an evil or an ungodly heart. You're speaking to things that you can't truly know and, and that are not your prerogative. And, and I see that in verses 5 and 6 because, because you know, you've got this disagreement that's going on in the church and Paul presses on both sides to see, hey guys, everyone here is trying to please God. So, so look at what he says in verse 6 again. He says, he who observes the day, the holy day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So, so, so what's going on here is they're not assuming the best of the other side. They're just assuming that the people who disagree with me disagree with me because they hate God. Or because, because they want to serve their own flesh. And Paul says, guys, you are all trying to honor the Lord. Whether you eat or don't eat, whether you observe the holy day or not, everyone here is trying to honor God and, and to give thanks for his blessings. So, so the implication is, is we can disagree without making a harsh accusation about someone else's heart or their motives. Now folks, that's a really important distinction. Because you can, and in fact at times you must evaluate the validity of someone else's standard or practice. But, but you can evaluate what someone is doing or, or their decision without harshly judging their sincerity. So for example, that's a silly illustration. Now I've loved my mother since the day I was born. And I imagine you have too. You were born loving your mother. But the truth is, is that throughout a lot of my childhood, I did a lot of things that, that didn't reflect a genuine love for my mother. I was a jerk, I was arrogant, I was disobedient at times. Now, now to be judgmental, what would be to say, well, because you did that, you don't love your mom. But that was never not true. 
I loved my mom through the whole process. And I'm thankful for people that called out my behavior and challenged the things I was doing and, and challenging the ways that what I did did not reflect a genuine love for my mom. But judgmentalism goes beyond just simply attacking the, the behavior to say, well, because you do that, you don't love your mom, which wasn't true. I loved her the whole time. And it's cynical, it's arrogant, and, and judgmentalism has an unloving edge. So I want to be very clear that God is not here forbidding all judgment. Right? People make bad choices all the time. And, and sometimes those choices come from sinful desires. And so I can recognize that wrong without jumping to a cynical conclusion that I simply don't have the authority or the ability to make. So, for example, let's, let's, get, let's just open up. Well, we're not really going to open up the can of worms. But, but, you know, biggest controversy in churches, worship styles. I mean, you want to get a group of pastors fired up, you want to get a couple of churches fired up, you know, start a debate about worship style. You know, and the Bible has a lot to say about how we worship God. A lot to say. You know, God cares about how we reflect Him, how we, how we, ref, how we serve Him, how, how we demonstrate His glory to the world. And so if we want to honor God, if we love God, then, then we should want to think hard about the best way to worship God. And Philippians 1.10 says that in all of life, that, that I am to strive to approve the things that are excellent. So I want to worship God the best way possible. And, and God has given me a lot of truth in the scriptures that, 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 ref, that, that drive how I'm going to do that. So worship matters. And God has opinions about worship. So, so to be really blunt, that means that not everyone is getting it right. There's a best way to worship God. And there's a not so good way to worship God. Not everyone is doing it with excellence to, in the way that most pleases the Lord. Now, now I can believe that, and, and I can think hard, and I can have strong convictions about the wet, best way to, work, to worship God. But, but, um, but while well, that's all true, it, it is not my place to harshly judge the sincerity of another brother who worships God a different way. Now, now his, his, his other methods might, might come from a sinful heart, but that's not mine to know necessarily. So I can believe, and I can even believe passionately, that what they're doing is wrong. But I can also assume that it comes from a heart that sincerely loves God and wants to please God. So folks, those are really important distinctions. Now, just because I disagree with someone's choices does not mean that I have to harshly accuse them of evil desires. And, and on the other hand, you know, just because God forbids judgmentalism doesn't mean that God doesn't care about anything and that I can just do whatever I want. No, no verse 14 says that the weak were wrong. God had an opinion, a truth about this issue. And yet verse 6 can say that the same people who had the wrong conviction were sincerely striving to please God. And so I have to hold those two things in tension. So, so with that in mind, we, we need to jump into the text. And again, remember that Paul's basic challenge in verses 5 through 12 
is to, is to, is to challenge us to leave judgment to God. He's primarily speaking to those, the, the Jews here who have the high standard, and he's challenging them to leave judgment to God. But, but how do you do that? How do you leave judgment to God when you have a strong conviction? When you have a strong opinion? That's hard, right? Some of you are very opinionated people. And there's your way or the highway. There's us four and no more. And that's how you approach life. So, so how do you have strong convictions and then still leave judgment to God about worship, parenting, and a host of other things? Well, well first of all, you must trust your brothers and sisters. You have to trust your brothers and sisters. Now, now verses 5 and 6, they strike a really important balance that is vital to your life as a Christian, and to our life as a church. So, so first of all, you must discern God's will and do it. God is very clear here. So, so verse 5 says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So, so the church was divided over holy days. We, we've talked about this some. And, and as I said last week, some believed that they were obligated to observe Old Testament Sabbaths and, and Old Testament festivals and holy days. But then other people in the church, Paul says they regard every day alike. They understood and believed that, that Christ has freed us from those obligations and we don't need to do that anymore. Now, that might seem like a really minor issue to us. We don't have much controversy in our church about Sabbaths and things of that nature. But, but churches have been torn apart by far smaller things than holy days. And so, and so because, and it's, it gets hard, it gets difficult, it gets tense. And so because of that, churches tend to jump to one of two lazy solutions to create unity. So on the one side, well, one simple way to create unity in his church is to just have a, a pastor or a leader or, or someone you look to outside your church who just tells you how to think and what to do on every particular issue. So the pastor gets up and says, you know, we're going to have unity, bless God. And so if we're going to have unity, then every woman is going to wear a skirt that goes this far down her leg. And you must be able to pinch this many inches on your pants. And, and men, you can only wear these three hairstyles. And, and you can only go to these places. You can eat at these restaurants and not that one. And, and you can watch these movies and not these over here. And, and so what do they do? They create unity by creating uniformity. We're all going to get along because we're all going to do the exact same thing. Now, there, there's an appealing side to that because it eliminates controversy and, and we don't all have to think, we just do what is told us to do. But of course, a lot of people don't like that. They don't like being told what to do. And they think some of those rules are dumb. So, so you can jump to another lazy method of achieving unity, which is to say that, that a massive spectrum of the Christian life just doesn't matter. You know, God doesn't really have an opinion on this. God doesn't care. We're, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to confront each other about it. You just do whatever you think is right and, and just know that we don't judge here. 
And, um, but, but Paul here, in verse 5, crushes both models of pursuing church unity. And he says there in verse 5 that we are each, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So, so he rejects the uniformity model, but because he commands everyone to practice discernment. Every Christian needs to think hard and think for himself. And he also rejects the no judgment model when he says that you are to be fully convinced. You are to have convictions, strong ones. So, so God will not allow you to just delegate discernment to someone else. Just tell me what to do. And, and as well, God will, will not tolerate you just having lazy convictions. No, every Christian needs to study the Bible. You need to understand what it teaches. You need to work and pray to apply it wisely to your life and to your situation. And then when you reach a conclusion, you think this is right. You do it. You're fully convinced. You act on your conviction. So, so men don't just say, well, I, I kind of think we're going to do this. No. You believe this is right. And you act on what you believe is right. And, and look again at what he says in verse 6. He says, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who, does so, or, uh, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, again, that person is wrong. He who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. So, I mean, Paul says, if you believe God wants you to observe holy days, then do it. And if you believe God wants you to only eat vegetables, then do it and give thanks to God. Even as he turns around and says, you don't need to have that standard. So, so. Whatever you believe God has called you to do, come to a conclusion and do it with conviction. Now, don't be lazy. Now, don't just do what your parents did. Or on the other side, just do what your parents didn't do. Ask them, because they probably have better logic and better reasoning than, than you want to give them credit for. And certainly don't just do what the world does. Because I can almost guarantee that whatever the world's doing, they're doing for wrong reasons and with wrong values. Study the Bible. Get godly counsel. Pray. And discern God's will regarding your entertainment, your, your modesty standards, your time commitments, how you're going to function as a family, what, what your budget is going to look like, and everything else. Think hard and then act on your conviction. By God's grace, honor the Lord the best way you know how. Now, now, all that sounds good. Have convictions. Live by my convictions. But here's the challenge. What happens when a lot of people with strong convictions that aren't exactly the same convictions get stuck in the same room? Well, they're going to clash. And, and apart from the grace of God, that clashing is almost certainly going to spiral into judgmentalism. Like, like, I'm challenging you to have strong convictions. 
And if you have strong convictions, and you've got some, some meat behind that conviction, well, I mean, what's the next step? To think that everyone that disagrees with you is, is ungodly and sinful. And, and so, particularly, you know, you, you're going to think that, that anyone who is less conservative is worldly. And, and anyone who is more conservative is a legalist. And so, it's a difficult balance. It's a difficult balance. Which is why so many churches just retreat either to uniformity or, or to agnosticism. So, so how do we give people to, to how do we give leave room for people to have strong convictions, but while maintaining Christ honoring unity? Well, first and foremost, we need the grace of God. I mean, we, we cannot do this apart from the grace of God. And, and as well, in, in, in keeping with that. We have to be a people who, who live at the foot of the cross, who are humble, who, who recognize that we are sinners saved by grace, that we don't have our act together, that we are dependent on the Lord. But, but beyond that, we, we have, and, and so beyond that then, because we are humble, we, we have to be people who recognize where, where the Bible ends and my conviction begins. Like this is what God says, and I'm Absolutely, 100%, without question, convinced of that. But my application could be wrong. Or someone else could have a other valid conviction. So, so we have to do that. But, but beyond that, you must also trust that your brother is also discerning God's will and doing it. You have to trust your brother. Now, now to back up for a second here, I mean, Paul, again, has been very clear about both holy days and food laws. So a, a, an important cross-reference here is Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to God. So Paul can't be much clearer. You do not need to observe holy days. You do not need to obey uh, purity laws. But, after he says that, he turns around in verse 6 of our text and says something incredible. I mean, he says, again, that, that people who are coming to these different conclusions, they are still doing that to the Lord. Both the people that are eating and are not eating are doing it for God and giving thanks in the process. So, so all of them are striving to please God. And they're giving thanks. So the challenge is, is that the strong, they have to trust the weak. That what they're doing, they're doing out of a sincere desire to please God. And the weak, who, who couldn't comprehend how anyone would ever eat that dirty Gentile food, they had to trust that the Gentiles were not eating that food because they were looking for an excuse to satisfy their lust. That they were doing it out of a sincere desire to please God. So Paul is calling both sides to love the other by assuming the best and by trusting each other that, that we are all striving to please God. Even if they're wrong about the conclusion they have. Now we really like that when we're the one being judged. Right? Don't judge me. I'm trying to please God, but it's really hard sometimes 
to trust other people that they are seeking God the same way you are. You know, so for example, I mentioned this last week, you, your kid goes over to someone else's house and comes home just fired up, you know, that, that, that they want to do this thing that your family has decided you will not do in your house. Now, what's the really easy thing to do? Like, well, if, if they were as godly as we are, then they would have the same conviction that we do. You know, I mean, it, this is tempting as a pastor. You know, someone sees something that another, someone in our church sees something that another church is doing, and it looks really exciting to them and really fun. And, and so it'd be easy to be like, well, if they were as godly as LifePoint, then they would do the same thing that LifePoint does. You know, or, or, or to extend it out, you know, when someone on the other side, someone challenges your conviction. They say, you know, have you thought about whether or not this is a good thing to do? Well, if you weren't just a judgmental legalist, then you wouldn't ever question me. But what Paul says that love assumes the best. It trusts my brothers and sisters in Christ. So what about you? Now, what is your attitude towards the people in this room? You've probably thought of someone during the service already. What is your attitude? What is your disposition to the people in our church with whom you disagree about some of these things? Do you trust them? That they are sincerely striving to please God? Or are you a conspiracy theorist about everyone and everything? You know, there's always some hidden agenda. And, and you have a cynical outlook on everyone and anyone who disagrees with you. I mean, God says that is not love. You know, I mean, I mean, God's people love each other and trust each other. Now, of course, it's true, all right? People are sinners. And oftentimes, they have corrupt desires that drive them to do ungodly things. But don't start with the assumption that everyone who disagrees with you does so for some ungodly reason. Trust your brothers and sisters. Assume the best. But, but you might hear all that and say, well, pastor, that all sounds good, but people are bad. And, and we believe that as Christians. Total depravity is an important part of our doctrine. People are bad. And, and so the only reason that someone would possibly take a different position than I have is because they're worldly or because they're legalistic. So how could I possibly trust a brother who has such a terrible conviction? Well, Paul is glad you asked. And he answers in verses 7 through 9 by challenging you to trust the transforming intent of the gospel. Look at what he says in verses 7 through 9. He says, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Now, these are really fascinating verses. And um, it's, it's obvious when, when you read through them that they are built around the theme of lordship. Jesus is lord of his people, and, and he purchased the right to be lord when he died and rose again. But, but it's not immediately obvious how the lordship of Christ helps me to not be judgmental. Right? And that's, that's a really important issue that, that we need to think through. How does the lordship of Christ 
keep me from being judgmental? And I'm going to argue that the answer is, is that Jesus is already Lord of every true believer. They belong to him. And and so because of that, I have to trust. I have to trust the transforming intent of the gospel. So so look again at what he says in verse 9. He says, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So so why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus rise again? To, To become the Lord of all true believers. So if someone is saved, Jesus is their Lord. Now, that's a very important theme that, that Paul's emphasized throughout the book. All the way back in, in chapter 1, he talks about this. Chapter 6 says that all believers are slaves of righteousness. Chapter 10 says that when you get saved, that then you confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so I've said many times as we've walked our way through Romans, Jesus didn't die on the cross merely to fill heaven with a whole bunch of people. He died to create worshipers, to bring people to himself who will glorify him, to to transform them into the image of his son. And and so we glorify Christ and we serve him, as verse 9 says, from the moment we are born again until the day that we die. So, So that is the transforming intent of the gospel, is that we would worship the Lord and serve him. And so that has major implications, first of all, for your life as you seek to please God. You have to honor the Lord. You have to honor the Lord. Now, the language of verses 7 and 8 is, is very broad. You know, Paul says Christians do not live for themselves, and they don't die for themselves. All of life, we live for the Lord. God's rule and God reigns. God's reign governs all of my life. Now, you might wonder, well, how can I die for the Lord unless I'm martyred? And, and the idea there seems to be that God's sovereignty reigns even through death. You don't determine the day of your death. God does. And Christ is Lord of all of my life from the moment I'm born again till the day that I go be with Jesus. But regardless, the point is clear. My life belongs to God. As a Christian, my life belongs to God. He is my Lord. And I am obligated to honor my Lord in all of life. So folks, that's really important as as you strive to discern God's will for your life. So so whenever you're wrestling through a difficult issue, how you're going to build your budget, what clothes you're going to wear, are are we going to go see this thing or not see this thing? You, You don't begin by thinking, this is what I really want to do, And how can I justify it? No, you always begin with the fact that Jesus is my Lord. And I want to please the Lord. And so I want to find the thing that is going to please Him. Your goal is never to bend God's will to yours. Your goal is to bend your will to God's. Now sometimes that means restraining your desires. And at other times, verse 6 says it means enjoying the good things that God has provided. And giving thanks for the good things that God has given you. So so I want to be clear that that stricter is not always godlier. Honoring God does not always mean that you don't do the thing you want to do. Sometimes it means you do it and you give thanks. 
So, so begin every decision-making process by declaring Jesus is Lord. And my goal here is to honor him. Whether I like the conclusion or not, I want to please Jesus. And then pray for wisdom. Because God promises in James 1 to give it. Study the Bible. Ask questions of godly counselors. Listen humbly. Think. Be fully convinced in your own mind. And then do what you believe is right. Striving to honor the Lord. Because he is the Lord. But, but I said earlier that the main purpose of verses 5 through 12 is, is, to, is to help the person who is struggling with judgmentalism to not be judgmental. So, so how does Christ's lordship help me not be judgmental? And the answer is, is that you have to trust God to mold your brother. In other words, you have to remember that Jesus didn't just purchase your life on the cross. He purchased your brother. And God hasn't only promised to transform you. He has promised to transform your brother in Christ. And look at what he says in verse 4. He says, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, speaking of Jesus, he stands or falls. And he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So Jesus is the Lord of every true Christian. And what does God promise there? He will make every true Christian stand. He's going to be faithful to you and to them. Now, now when we dis disagree, we often forget about that. Especially if you're the more conservative person, struggling not to judge the more liberal person. So for example, you think, and there is no way that a godly person would watch that trash. No way. You can't imagine it. Or another, another lady walks into church wearing something that, that you are just, you know, amazed that she would put that on. And you think there's no way that a godly person would ever do that. You're not thinking, well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that they're striving to honor the Lordship of Jesus. But folks, you have to remember that Jesus is the Lord of that person too. Now, now, she might be doing something wrong or foolish. But Christ is at work in the heart of every genuine Christian. And he is shaping them for glory. And you have to trust God to do that. Because when you are judgmental toward a fellow believer, you're not just attacking the person. You are attacking the Lord. And you're not just doubting them. You are doubting the sovereign work of his spirit in the hearts of his people and his promise to mold them into the image of Jesus. And this is a really important practical you know, idea. When I was at Intercity, I remember sitting through philosophy ministry class and Pastor Doran, he walked through his philosophy of ministry. And one of his tenets in his philosophy of pastoral ministry was confidence in the spirit. And, and, and uh, it always stood out to me, and because what he meant by that is that as a pastor, I don't need to fret over every little problem in people's lives. It's not my job to micromanage all of you and to pick at everything that I think you're doing is wrong. Now, there's times to confront. Absolutely. 
There's times to help people see the end of the direction that they're going. We we need to give biblical counsel. But but there's also a time where where you just point them to what the Word of God explicitly says, and you trust the Spirit of God to work in people's lives. There's a time that you just pray, and then you wait for God to do what God says he will do which is to mold his people into the image of Jesus. Now, that's really hard to do sometimes as a pastor. You know, it, it's really hard if you have an adult child who, who is a Christian, but they're making decisions over here that you really don't like, and you want to fix all of them. You know, it's really hard in, in, in various kinds. You know, it's hard pastorally. It's hard if you've got a friend who's a brother in Christ, and they're making some decisions that you're like, ugh, I'm not sure about that. You know, and so, you know, what happens is fear kicks in. Anxiety kicks in. And you feel like it's your job to fix everything about everyone. And you have to trust the Lord. You have to trust the Lord that he will not lose his people. That the Spirit of God is at work to convict all of his children. And he will bring them to glory. You know, so, so don't see your brother with whom you disagree through the lens of your disagreement. See him through the lens of faith and confidence in God that he will do what he has said. God is faithful. And you've got to trust him. So, so you have to trust God. And then finally, in light of that, you have to trust your brother and respond to the Lord. Or trust your brother to respond to the Lord. Now, again, you know, to go back to my illustration I used last week, you know, let's imagine the church potluck at, at Rome. And, uh, you know, Johnny Jew sees Joe Gentile sitting across the way, and he's got a big, juicy cheeseburger. Doesn't that sound really good? Bacon. You know, it's unkosher, and you're not allowed to to eat a mother with its milk so you can't actually put cheese on a burger if you're going to have one. So he's eating a cheeseburger there, which is all sorts of bad under the law. And you look at him, he's, he's, chow- I mean, he's, he's loving that cheeseburger. And you see him like that, and your heart is not full of happy thoughts. There's no way that someone lo- who loves Jesus could possibly enjoy a cheeseburger that much. It's, it, his heart's full of lust. And, and worldliness and ungodliness. But verse 6 says that you have to assume unless you have objective reason to believe to the otherwise that he is eating that unclean cheeseburger for the Lord. And that he is giving thanks to God for that cheeseburger. So, we love Ron. And, and why is that? I, I like cheeseburgers too. So, why, why do we believe that? Because Joe Gentile is a Christian just like you. And the Holy Spirit lives in Joe's Gentile's heart just like he lives in your heart. And, and, he, and, and, and Christ is the one who, who died for that brother. He gave, and, and, and your brother gave his life to Christ, he was born again, he received Jesus. 
So, so you trust that by the grace of God, he is doing the best that he can to honor the Lord and to rejoice in his blessings. You assume that's his heart. Now, now Joe Gentile may not always get it right. And that's okay. There, there might be ways that you can correct him and help him grow. But, but fundamentally, you trust that he is striving to please God. And, and you give him the benefit of the doubt. You assume the best. You resist judgmentalism. So, so folks, that, I mean, that, that's hard. That's hard, isn't it? You know, I mean, and pastorally, you know, that, that model where the pastor just tells everyone what to do, that sounds really appealing. Because the things I believe are right, I believe are right. And if you disagree with me, I think you're wrong. And, and you should think the same way, right? I mean, if you've got a conviction, you've got a conviction. So everyone should have the same convictions as me. You know, and, 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 it's, and it's easy, you know, we could easily all be threatened by people who, who don't just do what we say they should do. But, but we have to trust the Spirit of God. We have to walk by faith. It's vital to our life as a church. So, so this evening, this evening I'm going to cover verses 10 through 12. So, so you, we don't have another 10 minutes coming here. And, and Paul's final challenge for resisting judgmentalism is that you have to trust the Lord to judge his people. If they blow it, it's not your problem. Christ will take care of it someday at the judgment seat of Christ. You don't have to take care of it. But but that said, I want you to go home today with two committed to living out two challenges. So first, determined by the grace of God that you will strive to please the Lord in all of life. You want to be fully convinced in your mind of what the Lord's will is, and you want to do the Lord's will. And that's how you're going to live. That's how you're going to lead your family. That's how you're going to serve the Lord. So, so be fully convinced. Do what you believe honors Christ. And then second, determine that you will leave judgment to the Lord. You're, you're going to let God be God. And you're not going to try and shoulder that burden yourself. And you will not harshly judge your brother. Instead, you will love him. You'll trust him. You'll support him. And you'll help each other onto Jesus. Father, thank you for your lordship over us. Thank you that Jesus died and rose again and that he is the Lord of the church. And so, God, we, we thank you for the grace that we have received and we pray, Lord, and thank you for the hope that we have of the work of that grace in the lives of everyone around us. And so, God, I pray that you would give us all wisdom and discernment, give us understanding, give us love and humility and faith to, to be a people who are seriously committed to doing your will, and yet also who love each other and care for each other well. Lord, that is impossible apart from your grace. So, so we need you. And we pray that you'd help us to be a church that pleases Christ and that glorifies your name. In Jesus' name, amen.